I am David Short. I am Jackson O'Brien. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> no, Joel, Joel, no. No, don't do it. We're the podcast that's got all the fun topics. <laughs> we're talking about beards. We're talking about we're talking about bugs. Bugs are cool, right, kids? We're just talking about everything the kids are talking about. Specifically, this episode, you know, genocide. Woo! Mm. Yeah. Crickets. <laughs> uh, hey guys. <laughs> so we are talking about super serious topic actually this week. Probably not too in depth because people write massive tomes on this topic. So yeah, yeah. we are not going to get that in depth on it. But we're talking about divine violence, uh, mostly in the Old Testament, specifically genocide. The idea that Israelites were told to conquest. Uh, the land and eradicate seven groups of of the Canaanites. I have a buddy who has been through a awesome class on Old Testament difficulties with me here in at Vancouver, and he is a buddy by blood as well because he a is blood buddy David's kind. <laughs> no, he's not a blood buddy though. <laughs> But he he is of David's kind. He is David's brother, Joel. So, Joel, welcome. Uh, you so excited for this topic? I'm very excited to talk about this. <laughs> Not an easy topic, there, but I think every Christian who's decided, I'm going to read the Bible through in a year, have to go through the difficult parts of God commanding violence and commanding humans to do that violence. Mm. So, I guess my question for you guys is, when you read the Bible, I'm assuming you've read the Bible through, do you have an instance of divine violence uh, that you think of as, like, great and not very problematic, like, is a great example of it, that, you know, I'm glad God did that? And do you have an example that, for you personally, has always rubbed you the wrong way or been uh, troublesome? So I don't know who wants to start on that, but I'd love to hear. I'll do this. I thought about it a lot. I didn't. No, I did. You know, I'll preface this with saying that the Bible is nuts all over the place. <laughs> and yes. and there, there are a few things that I just don't understand. And when I, like, as much as I've, as much as I think that I allow God to reveal himself to me through his word and through creation, I still think that I've fabricated him in a lot of ways that he has to be a certain thing. And that thing is like not someone that initiates violence on a grand scale against other humans. But there's also other instances where he does it against his own people too. And so there was that one point, like, I think it's the I possibly AI, but maybe I, who knows? Joshua 8, as far as we understand. That was the one when um, there was some Israelite that took spoils or did something wrong. And then God, like the whole community stoned. Or did they get struck down or something like that? I can't remember. They got stoned. Yeah. They got stoned. Do you remember who the family was? 
Aiken, Aiken and his family. Right. And so that's why it's it came to me, it kind of hit me in a space of like, okay, like, I don't think I can understand this text well and understand who God is well without taking him off of like the defendant stand and me being the prosecutor, like saying, justify yourself when he can do whatever he wants. If he's the author of life, he can be the taker of life. So I don't know if that helper, it may have been more along the lines of helped to be like, these all suck, but somehow I I see it differently now. Mm. Yeah. Mm I think uh, I was trying to think of like what is an instance of divine violence that I I definitely find not problematic, <laughs> um, and I I I do think you know like I I'm not against divine violence per se right I I, I do believe that violence is sometimes an appropriate and necessary response to injustice. Interesting. Um, and so I don't know. Maybe I'd go with Ahab and Jezebel. <laughs> Eventually met a violent end. I think I'm okay with that. <laughs> That's um, a good one. They were bad people. They were just they weren't very nice. And uh, on the other side, I mean, there's there's definitely like a, a good number of stories of, of violence that I find troubling. I think we're going to talk about Canaan. So the other one I would bring up is uh, the plagues on Egypt. Specifically, I think the um, the killing of the firstborn sons by God, the firstborn son, not just of Pharaoh, but every firstborn son in Egypt down to the firstborn son of the slave at her hand mill, it says, uh, that bothers me. Hmm. I'll, I'll tack on there because that's a good, um, I wrote a story in Carmel. Uh, they were, we were told to write a story from the perspective of a biblical author or maybe from like a, a tree that was in the story, you know, try to get yourself in a story. So, I wrote one on the plagues from the perspective of the slave at the handmill um, who loses her firstborn son uh, and doesn't understand what's going on or why she should be punished for this and, you know, was captured in war or something um, in order to be in Egypt anyway, was not in any way part of the empire in a helpful way or in a way that she supported it. So just from that perspective, and it really, that was a troubling story. And I think the story of the conquest, the story of like Jericho, I I get why we teach it to kids. I very much do, but I find it super troubling. I mean, I grew up watching the um, Veggie Tales for that one, Veggie Tales again. Then, you know, the walls come down and they can't throw any squishies at them anymore, Slurpees or whatever. <laughs> and the two French peas are in the rubble, and then they just run away. And like, that's the end of the story. And then you realize, oh no, they went in and they killed the women and the children and every living thing, <laughs> and, except for Rahab's family. So that's very difficult. On the other hand, I don't really find a problem per se with God. I think God kills everybody in the end. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like He does. He, he takes every life, and that's totally within his hands, I think. Mm. Him choosing human agents to do it is very problematic. Mm. Uh, and I think when it seems arbitrary, like the slave slave at the handmill's sure. son, those, those are problematic to me. But mm. I don't know, Dave, what do you think? I've... This is one of the subjects that hasn't 
caused me a ton of grief through the years. I, I feel mostly in a livable spot with it. I don't, but I, I find it hard to place them on different planes. Like whether there's some that I feel worse about and some that I feel better about, they seem, I don't know. Mm. It's, it's kind of all the same Mm. in a certain way. I think we would all agree that God is allowed to judge who he wants and that we're, we're all, I mean, maybe all of us adults, that would, that would be the question about children, but Mm. all of us adults are, are sinful and die because of our own choices and not even just because of the choices of Adam, but because of the choices we all continue to do. Mm. So, why should this be problematic at all, I guess, would be my question, because I think we all have a sense that it doesn't feel good, but I don't know, if if we do believe that God has the right to take every life, why why is anything in the Old Testament problematic to us? Um, I So, I, I am not a Calvinist. Um, <laughs> no? And it runs in the family? Uh, One of the few things Dave and Joel very much agree on. Interesting. And so, uh, Tremper Longman, um, my professor this past week, you know, he says, okay, well, look, everybody is sinful. Uh, Everybody is deserving of God's judgment. Uh, Therefore, ultimately, you know, like, if God wants to kill all of the Canaanite children, that's okay. Like, you know... They they can't argue that they didn't deserve that. They are sinful like everyone else. Even babies are sinful. And I don't believe that. I I like I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't know what to do about that. I I understand like where in scripture they're getting that idea from, but I think that not every person and particularly not babies are deserving of of death. I don't think that we are all sinful in a way that is deserving of death. Now, that doesn't, you know, like in in the messiness of history, obviously a lot of things happen that aren't just. Sometimes, you know, like I guess a, a question would be like, you know, can there be collateral damage in God's judgment? Is it appropriate for people who are not deserving of a specific judgment to be swept up along with the guilty? You know, like what if there's a couple of righteous people in the city of Sodom, you know, <laughs> like there wasn't 10, but maybe there's two or three. What about those guys? Like, um, maybe that, maybe that's okay. I don't know, but I resist the idea that all of us from birth, like before we are conscious, before we have mm-hmm. any capacity to choose right and wrong are deserving of divine, uh, judgment, like to, to the highest degree. And I, I am resistant to the idea that, you know, any of us for the smallest sin, as soon as we have transgressed God's holy law, we are deserving of, you know, eternal damnation or even just being killed <laughs> in a really unpleasant way. My concept of justice just does not allow for that. And obviously that puts me at odds with, you know, a lot of stuff that happens in the Old Testament. So, here we are. <laughs> Here we are in a class called Old Testament Difficulties. You know, you go in that class and then you just like look left and right and you're like, why are you here? It's kind of like prison. <laughs> what difficulty brought you here? Because we all have them. I don't know. What do you... 
I, Jack or Dave? I think it's problematic because we're, we believe, I think, that mercy and grace are better than justice or judge. Like, like even, even in the case right. where justice is deserved, and like, even if you're looking at justice as like punishment as really good, as deserved as it should be as warranted, yeah. you know, there's nothing wrong with it. We're still in the camp of, but it, wouldn't it be better to show mercy or grace? Like, isn't that, and I think that that's ingrained in us, whether that's correct or not. I don't know, but yeah, I, I agree with that. I think like my, one of my absolute fundamental non-negotiable beliefs about God <laughs> is that God is not willing that anyone would perish, right? And he he wants everyone to repent and to be saved. Mm-hmm. And I like I you know, there's definitely some stories in there where it really seems like actually maybe God would prefer that these Canaanites uh don't repent. Maybe he would prefer for them just to perish. Mm-hmm. Yep. Jack, did you want to say your I think I finally understood the question. <laughs> and and <laughs> And I think if I did, here's my answer to the question that I'm understanding. That's it's pacifism that drives me to not like what's going on. Right. And then that that's like, it's not like fancy theological footwork to tie Christ to what goes on. Cause like if Christ is the fullness of God in bodily form, then what? Like that doesn't, I can't square it. Like on the surface of it, I cannot square it when, when we, we use the word genocide and, and think that this is the same God that, that turns another cheek, that offers his cloak, that says, yeah. do not resist. But, and so that's, my, that's a big question for me. Like, why would you guys care if, 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 if Jesus isn't a pacifist? Then, well, it's fine because God's like this. But for me, it's like, no, God's not like this if Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, my my I'll say my problematic, but I won't say them all because there's many. <laughs> uh, I think we should find it problematic because genocide is wrong. <laughs> because I, I I that's a hard thing. I just believe that the revelation of Jesus and the morality he teaches me would lead me to believe that wiping out a people group is wrong. And that's a hard thing, because when I look at, I I can't help but read it through the Islamic State right now, who in so many ways are similar. Uh, Soldiers who believe they're divinely on a mission, that God has told them to take a promised land, that they've been oppressed by superpowers for hundreds of years, but God is going to deliver a land, but that there's people already occupying it. And so the Yazidi Christians, you know, the I think the UN or maybe it's Amnesty has declared that the Islamic State has committed genocide against the Yazidi Christians. They've tried to fully eliminate them from the land. Hmm. So a lot of issues where I just go, how am I able to tell the Islamic State that what they're doing is evil when I celebrate and teach my children's stories of my spiritual ancestors doing the same thing or doing a very similar thing. That doesn't mean that I'm ready to reject all of it in the Old Testament, but it just, the morality revealed by Christ would lead us to think that some of these things feel wrong. 
tough thing. So, Joel, you mentioned that you feel like sometimes violence is an appropriate or loving action, even. Can you explain that? Yeah, so I, I don't know if I would say that uh, violence can be loving. I suppose, um, like, violence that stops injustice from continuing, violence that uh, is able to save other people from suffering or, you know, oppression or, or whatever. Like, I, I, I think if the alternative is not doing violence and allowing injustice mm. to continue, I think I am on board with violence in those circumstances. Now, mm. like, you know, it may be easy for us to to leap to the conclusion that, oh, what this situation needs is some violence, right? <laughs> like, that's going to solve everything. And probably mm. in a lot of circumstances where that seems like the right and the easy answer, it's not actually the right answer. Um, but I do think there are some circumstances where... Yes, I mean, like the choices are allow, uh, you know, allow something evil to continue or stop it with force. Yeah, it's it's I, Joel, I can't. It's really hard for me to to find a just cause. Like the thing is, is that I think I need to say that there was just causes for war in the Old Testament because God was the one who said, "Pack up, let's do this." And if I do believe that God is the God of justice, that his reasons were right and true and fair. But what sucks for me now is that at no point after Christ do I think, is there going to be an instance where God says, pack up, let's do this. Second coming? Not not in the second coming? (laughs) Well, even then I'll I'll be in the the infirmary or something. (laughs) Yeah, I I respect that. I I mm. think that is. I mean, look, yeah, Jesus said, "Turn the other cheek," right? So, so what do you do with that? the The difficult thing is, like, Jesus doesn't tell us what to do in every situation, right? He doesn't say, "Here's how we apply." this principle of turning the other cheek to, okay, well, what if it's not you? What if you see someone who's hitting someone else? Like, what do you do about that? Do you intervene or not? So, and I like the, you know, the, the new Testament really does not address the question of like, what do you do if you are the ruler of a nation and, you know, your national interests are threatened by another nation or, you know, like Mm. you see uh, genocide taking place and you can intervene with force Mm. to stop it or like maybe you can stop it, right? Like um, like the the New Testament is written to to people who are out of power, right? And it's it's written to address their circumstances and it says some things there that are very challenging to us and like, you know, (laughs) like submitting to the human authorities that are over you submitting to rome submitting to Mm -hmm. like this this evil occupying force uh like yeah how how do we live that out in our context is a very difficult question um and i i have a lot of respect for people you know obviously like don't we all have a lot of respect for people like uh gandhi and martin luther king um who um took these radical nonviolent uh, stances uh, mm-hmm. in the face of some really serious injustice that kind of looked like maybe mm. it could really use some violence to overthrow it. Um, and I, I suppose I, I just don't have the confidence that 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 
that uh, that a nonviolent approach is going to work in every situation, yeah. and I am not willing to allow injustice to continue hmm. for the sake of keeping my hands clean and not stepping in in a violent way. I, I recognize that that's sort of a loaded way of, of framing it, but that's that's sort of my feeling about it. Uh, we are specifically talking about the Old Testament. There's a bunch of different views on what happened then <laughs> and how are we supposed to understand it today. So, I mean, these are not all the views. There's lots of shades of gray in between them and um, some that I haven't thought of, I'm sure. But... I'm going to give the views one at a time, and I would just love you guys to shortly just comment on them. Hmm. The first view is that God is violent, or God uses violence, uh, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, that um, Jesus, as much as he does teach us a new ethic, there's texts that show him as a warrior and show him as using violence. So... God is violent, and so humans, under certain circumstances, can also be violent. I think it's, it might be semantics, Mm -hmm. but I don't think that it should be so much as just, well, God does it so I can. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm just, I'm, it's more, like, if we, if we believe in violence has a place, it's not, it's all coming from God directed it, Right. Like in the Old Testament, God said to the Israelites, go do, I'm, you're not deciding, hey, the Canaanites should be wiped out. I'm deciding it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You go do it now. Right. And that's, I think that would always be the guideline for, which is, I mean, it's, that leads to all sorts of problems with how do you, but I'm saying that's the the distinction. Can I ask a quick question, Dave? Because I've been curious about this during the class, but it hasn't been brought up. When you hear of, like, people in church history hearing that from God, whether Constantine receiving a sign that under this sign you will conquer and becoming a Christian or, you know, affirming the God of the Bible because of this military victory that is at God's hand or um, some of the rhetoric around the Crusades or different things, do you think any of those instances they may have heard God legitimately tell them to do that? Or do you feel like... In the Bible, they heard God, but in church history, they did not. I would be hesitant to mm-hmm. rule it out. I would be skeptical of yeah. it happening. I think that the Israelites conquering the promised land was a very specific thing. Long-standing task. With, with a very direct goal. It was very well defined by God. It was very clear as to what was going on and why. That's helpful. That's helpful. The other thing to consider, though, is sort of the idea that nations just kind of always are doing God. Like like God, when God okay. says, hey, I'm using Assyria or I'm using yeah, right. Babylon or I'm using whoever. They're kind of, this was my plan to come in here and yeah. Yeah. whack you with a stick. So like people kind of always... Sure, in a sense, God is always directing leaders somehow. He's involved in the process. We wouldn't deny that he's not, or maybe maybe we would. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I might might deny it. (laughs) (laughs) That is good. (laughs) 
do you feel like, yeah, how is, okay, so Joel, how do you feel that God is involved in those decisions? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You took a whole course on this. Uh, Okay, so the next view would be that God is violent or God uses violence because he's a sovereign judge, because that's his right, but that Christians are commanded to be nonviolent because of Jesus' example and teachings, so that... Yes, God may have done those things in the Old Testament and specifically with the genocide and he's he's a warrior god and we're not denying that but that there's there's no way we are. And so Jackson that's probably closer to where you fall. So this like my my pro, my issues with the Old Testament and violence and divine justice within it have helped guide me to be the New Testament driven person that I am and that like all the things that you see going on in the Old Testament is like screaming and begging and pointing to the person of Christ, the fulfillment of what Israel was supposed to be. And that's that's where I get my, why I'm more of a New Testament guy than you guys are. Like that drove a lot of it when I thought about this in Bible college. So another view on this, uh, which I'll say is probably not a view taken by a ton of evangelical Christians, but there are some. Uh, Not that that means it's wrong, but it's just not something that we would have grown up uh, hearing from the pulpit in any way, is that the Old Testament genocide, um, the conquest of Canaan, uh, did not actually happen. That people looking at the archaeological record go, there's no evidence of these big burnings of cities at the time that's listed, that... Um, it's just, there's no, there's no evidence that this massive change happened in the land. It seems like things kind of went on as usual during that time period. And so that's kind of, for some people, that's a way of resolving that, like, God didn't tell them to do it because it didn't happen. You know, like, there you go. What do you guys think of, of that view of trying to make sense of it? The first thing I would say is that for one, I think the Israelites failed at every single genocide. Like, I think that they just didn't for like all those people, all those people are still hanging around. (laughs) And I mean, even judges one, I think is just says they failed to take this. They failed to take this. They failed to kick these guys out. They failed. That's helpful because I think that is a lot of biblical scholars have said the archeologists haven't read their Bibles because the conquest was not complete in any sense. So of course it won't look like the land has this massive change because they, mm. they failed sort of thing. So the, the other view, and this is Tremper Longman. It's not his view, but he had a PhD student, Peter Enns, who has written a, okay, yeah. a, a book, well, he's written several books, but one that is for a popular audience called for the Bible tells me. So he uses the example of, the conquest of Canaan and says the re- this might have happened in history, but that God did not order them to do it. They just think that God ordered them to do it. So they were having experiences with God through their own culture, just like we do today where we're trying to understand God. And in their culture, every God was a warrior God. Exactly. Yeah. Sanctioned every battle and told you to kill people. And so they got the idea that 
that's what our God is like, but he's telling us to kill the Canaanites. So that would be his argument that it's kind of using God, but that the New Testament and Jesus reveal what God truly is like. And so we can lean on that because it's the fullest image of God that we've been given and that we do not have to affirm the genocide in the Old Testament. We don't have to defend it because it was wrong. I don't know. What do you guys think? (laughs) I don't know if I want to say it tactily. Like off the top of my head, my hot take is that that view is bogus. Mm. The Bible never, ever pulls any punches when it condemns when it comes to condemning the Israelites. Like it's not a book that's written to be like, yay, Israelites are great. Mm-hmm. It's full of you guys suck and God is so disapproved with what you've done. So I like I would reject the idea of them altering it or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I mean, you know, it's a slippery slope, right? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I so you know uh, Longman's uh, response and and I I think I I buy this like you know once you start saying oh well this this part of the Bible you know this this is an ancient uh, common misunderstanding of the the true nature of God and in Jesus or in you know the particular passages about Jesus that I like best then we see mm. what God is really like and we can use these uh passages as our guide and dismiss any passages that uh present a different view i mean uh, yeah like it, it i i do i i agree that that opens up uh, like uh, just cutting out anything in the bible that we we don't like However, when I read stuff like Joshua, it really looks to me like a bunch of ancient Near Eastern people who had a very, like, tribalistic understanding of God, and they felt like God was for them and against their enemies and I'll just like I don't I don't know how to square that with <laughs> what we see in Jesus and elsewhere like it you know I I find this to be like a a pretty good persuasive account of what are these people actually thinking like why do we have this claim in here that God orders this violence oh like it just looks so obvious. Like it's because that's how people thought then. And it really doesn't seem to fit at all with some later stuff. On the other hand, are we able to sit in judgment of different parts of scripture like that? I don't know. So yeah, I don't have a good answer to that question. I I feel the pull of the Enzian view and I recognize its dangers. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm in a very similar boat to Joel on this one. I read the For the Bible Tells Me So and really enjoyed it and enjoyed, I found it very persuasive, especially on that argument, because it is so hard to square and it does seem like there's some propaganda going on and it seems like, gosh, I just, yeah, how do you get to that place? At the same time, I... I think it's totally fair to say, wait a second, you're going to have to start cutting out parts of the New Testament. Revelation is also violent. <laughs> and 
also some of the Gospels, and Mark is violent. And so I do feel like, it, I mean, it's how many times do we mention the slippery slope argument on this podcast? But it's a slippery slope. I mean, you, uh, where does that stop? And then it's hard because it just sounds like the God of the Bible just starts sounding like everything you want right now, which is seems like the definition of an idol, which is it doesn't disagree with you. Okay, right now, you're talking straight to ISIS. Actually, I don't want them to be one of our listeners, so government, they're not. Um, you are talking to them, or and you have to lay out why what they are doing is wrong, and yet your spiritual answer is what they did that was very similar. It was right. What would be the thing you would say to them? to condemn their actions. Hmm. If you're trying to find something that would actually be in the least way convincing, there's going to be zero. But I mean, the answer comes down to whether God is actually ordaining it or not. And we just believe that he did for the Israelites and he's not now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think like a question like this, I, I think it's a good question and it, it pulls me a lot closer to saying, yeah, I, I guess I, I don't really believe that God commanded Israel to, uh, kill all the Canaanites. I, I just, I can't see that. But if I'm, if I'm trying to explain what the differences are and why, <laughs> why the case of ISIS is not like the case of Joshua, then I'm going to say, all right, well, look, you know, these are the preconditions for divinely sanctioned genocide. Number one, you need a burning bush, right? Like, that's where you start. <laughs> we need at least 12 plagues. We need water to turn into blood. We need a large body of water to part into two, right? I want to see uh, a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud yeah. and mana, quail, like just, you know, I've got a long list. Yeah. Show me show me some good signs and wonders and then I'm going to believe that God is on your side to the extent that, the I will, yeah, that, that, that I will allow you to go into another person's land and wipe them all out. Um, that's, you know, what do they say? Like extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence. That's my argument. <laughs> oh, that's a really good, that one. was fiery. That was awesome. Whoa. I, I'm against ISIS. I don't, I don't approve of what they're doing. <laughs> and how? <laughs> Whoa. I, I bring up the question because it's what I've been thinking about the last couple of days, because I think it, reveals the massive tension inside me that I cannot fathom my answer to ISIS being because my ancestors heard God right and you heard God wrong. That just, I, I want to say they're wrong because genocide's wrong. It, it's all horrifically wrong and that's absolute. That is what God has told us. But to not be able to say that, to be able to say it's a theological issue is just very difficult for me. And I think that's where the tension lies of the Old Testament, which is becoming very real in new ways um, as we see new promised lands being created. Very tough. Uh, I don't know. Any closing comments from any of you guys? Can I say a few words about 
living with difficulties uh, with scripture, living with doubt. I think, uh, yeah, I, and I mean, I, I want to say, first of all, like, uh, some of us struggle very deeply with specific theological issues or specific things in the Bible that others of us do not struggle with. Um, and I, if you are a person who just isn't very bothered by stuff like this, I think that's okay. Um, mm. and I, I don't really understand that, but I, mm. I recognize, like, I, I think it has a lot to do with our personalities and our, like the, the way mm. that we just naturally are, whether I think some people are just sort of naturally disposed to faith and others of us are naturally skeptical and, and just can't help but having a lot of doubts about uh, things like this. And so, um, I mean, if, if you are being honest with yourself and with God about what you believe, what you find troubling or not, I think that's okay. And for those of us, and I, I think I'm, I'm definitely, you know, I mean, this is a, a spectrum, but I, I feel like I'm, I'm pretty far towards the pole of being very skeptical, having deep and abiding doubts about scripture that, that I can't seem to resolve. Um, I think ultimately it is not our job to muster enough faith to cover over our doubts. I think that faith comes from God and we can ask God to grant us faith in the midst of our doubts. Um, but I don't think it, it's our job to suppress our doubts or try to make the answers that were presented cover over those doubts the essential thing that we need before anything else is to be honest with ourselves and with God. And in some circumstances, you know, in, in the right times to be honest with others, but not always like you don't need to be honest with everyone about exactly what you're feeling at every moment, right? Just speaking from my own experience, faith can be sustained purely by an effort of the will in the face of overwhelming doubts for a time. <laughs> and you can ask God to give you the faith um, to live with those doubts. But I, I don't think it is ever a good idea to deny to yourself the doubts that you have. I think a faith sustained by the effort of will <laughs> is is a faith that's on life support and it needs <laughs> some intervention right to to be revived but a faith that is sustained by denial of doubt is a zombie <laughs> and it will eat your brain Mm. <laughs> that's uh, that's cheesy, but that's the metaphor I thought of when I was walking over here. So that's all I have to say. That's super powerful, Joel. I um, 
it took me a really long time to figure out what to do with doubt. And it's helpful to hear you say that and to have guides along the way, because it's, it's a long journey. Um, before we end, I do want to end on a note of levity, <laughs> as in not <laughs> this topic cannot destroy us. And so it is time for a game show. <laughs> game show game show not not only are dave and joel brothers not only do they share an enduring displeasure for calvinism but there is there is a third binding factor in their relationship jackson you want to go into it yeah i'd love to gentlemen we have something special for you from another short that kind of binds you all together. A third brother. A third, <laughs> a third brother. And the third strand in this brotherly cord is the Edmonton Oilers. <laughs> and also oh, Steve as like, the third brother. Yeah, I was like, we have a third brother. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 and also Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> right. This rope is complicated. Um, so we have a bit of a game show for you guys on... That Stephen made to uh, check how well they know, how well you know your brother Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Now, Steve's the only guy who I thought could come close to your two knowledge on the Oilers. So I was like, he's the only one who can create this game show. And he has done that. So before Jackson starts with the questions, a couple of the ground rules. There's really two. <laughs> um, number one, before you start, I need both of you guys to have 30 seconds where you hype yourself up and your knowledge and tell the other person why they're trash. Number two, you have a phone a friend, and that friend is me. <laughs> so at any time, if you're That's stumbling over your Oilers question, <laughs> and also you have to use your phone a friend before the end of the Joel, game. Joel, you really should phone a friend. <laughs> Both of you can phone me anytime. Okay, Joel, spit that. I feel like my knowledge of the Oilers may have been exaggerated. <laughs> I... Uh. Joel's a published author on hockey blogs. What? Joel is the leading expert on goalie save percentage in the playoffs. What? <laughs> All of this is true. <laughs> Go, Dave. Uh, yeah. I'm not good at hyping myself up ever. Uh, Dave is a legend on the hockey blog comment section. I'm really not. <laughs> he is a troll on the hockey blog comment sections. Uh, OilersNation.com. Oh, you will find Dave underneath the handle. Oh, I don't comment on Oilers Nation very often, <laughs> if ever. What's your go? But I have, I have yeah. spent. Uh, I've spent like this. Okay, this one. This one time pre-podcast, Jackson came in. And I was like, Jack, I just have to finish up because I had been going for about 45 minutes straight <laughs> on just describing why these people were wrong on their assessment of Matthew Kachuk. And it was... Uh... Okay. I think Dave won that spit battle. All right, Jackson, go into the questions because it's late. <laughs> okay, uh, here we go. First question. This is for you, Joel. Who was the 
Edmonton Oilers' first ever NHL draft pick in 1979. Uh, yeah, I forget. <laughs> I remember. I, I guess I shouldn't. Uh, I shouldn't talk about the other Oilers trivia that I do remember because that's probably coming up. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. First draft pick. I'm going to say Mark Messier. Ooh, no, it was Kevin Lowe. Kevin Lowe. Hey, oh, you see, think that? But I, di- I didn't know that, but that was going to be my guess. That's okay. So but I, I did not know it. Here you go. Ready, Dave? Who scored the first ever NHL goal in Oilers history? Ugh. It was someone totally lame, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Dave, ring-a-ding-ding, uh, do you want to call me? <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll call in my friend on this one. <laughs> Hello. Hey, Tanner. I I need to know who scored first ever for the Oilers hmm. in the NHL. Was um, Gretzky around at that time? No. <laughs> I guess You're it was so Wayne used. Gretzky. All right. No, I'm not going to. Goodbye. I'm not Good taking luck, that. <laughs> <laughs> You're useless. I'm going to guess. Uh, I, I guess that it's not Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> Shoot, you're not wrong. <laughs> Do you want to guess again and no. give it? <laughs> Just tell me who it was. Kevin Lowe. <laughs> really? <laughs> I knew that one. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> so I'm, you knew the first. I'm one. guessing Kevin Lowe for the next question. <laughs> Interesting. Neither of you love Stephen. Okay, here we I go. I was pretty you, sure that it couldn't have been Kevin Lowe as the first draft pick because I remembered he scored the first goal. But ooh, you, you uh, got me. You got me. Nice. Yeah. Should have reversed the questions. Question three. This is for Joel. Who has been a player, coach, and general manager for Edmonton Oilers? <laughs> Boo. Uh, I, player, coach, general manager. I think uh, Kevin Lowe or Craig McTavish would both be acceptable answers to that. You get a half point because it's Kevin Lowe again, but this guy named Glenn Sather. Uh, I don't think he played for the Oilers. Well, if Craig only McTavish you had called me, Joel. <laughs> You would have said Wayne Gretzky, you tool. Okay, <laughs> Joel's at a half. Let's see if you I can think get ahead. I, I give Joel a full point for that. He said, he said Kevin Lowe and Craig Tosh. <laughs> so this is for Dave. What former Oilers players have six rings? <laughs> Kevin Lowe. <laughs> <laughs> players. Uh, I know Kevin Lowe. Mark Messier. One more. Don't you One wish more? you had my call now? Uh, <laughs> I can't think of another one. Maybe what, Essa Tikkanen? Uh, Kevin Lowe is right. Mark Messier is right. And Tanner would have said Wayne Gretzky. He'd been wrong. Yeah. And then last one, Glenn Anderson. Oh, Glenn. Yeah, that's point six 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 repeating. All right, go to Joel. Okay, now it's Joel and Dave both have one question left, and it's worth double, so Joel could take it. Yeah, this one might be nice. Uh, so, Joel, name the players in Oilers history to have worn number four. <laughs> I will That's go a word with, with Steve. A, uh, Taylor Hall, and someone more recently, uh, Kevin Lowe. Kevin Lowe? If Kevin Lowe wore number four, then it would have been retired, right? <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Huh. Well, Kevin Lowe was right. Taylor Hall was right. This other guy named Chris Russell. Wait, Kevin Lowe was right? Yeah, yeah. he wore Not four. so stupid now, am I? So, Dave, I think you're... Yeah, it's 1.6 to 2 right now, so you could win. 
right? How does he get two? Okay. Uh, he has two for suspense. Now go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Last one. Here you go. Who has played the most regular season and playoff games in franchise history? Is it Kevin Love? Yeah. <laughs> Come from behind, Victor. <laughs> Man, finally, you get that every third answer. All right. Uh, that is it for us. I'm Tanner Haas. I'm David Short. I'm Jackson O'Brien. Okay. My name is Joel Short. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for being on, Joel. Joel.